Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And as you turn there, I'm honored and humbled to speak to you again, bring you the Word of God again, and bring you the warm greetings of the Heritage Reformed Church and Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. Let's read now the Word of God from Revelation 19, 1 through 9. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Have you ever noticed that the Bible doesn't speak very often about dying and going to heaven, but it speaks more often about dying and going to be with Jesus? You see, Jesus is the sum and substance of heaven. Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish divine, said, Jesus and heaven are nearly synonyms. You see, there are important reasons why heaven is so focused on Jesus. One reason is that you can't get to there without him. You can only be saved by Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, there's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Another reason is that Jesus is the centerpiece of heaven because in heaven, faith in Christ will become sight of Christ. Peter describes it this way, We love a Christ here now whom we have not seen, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But in that day, Isaiah says, Your eyes shall see the King in his beauty. 
Then too, heaven is Christ-centered because in heaven, every believer will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. We who believe shall be like Him, says John, and He shall be the firstborn among many brethren. What a, what a bliss it will be in that day to be sin-free, to be as holy as Jesus is holy, so that it will be impossible to be unchristlike. Then too, heaven is focused on Jesus because His glory will always shine there and His praises will never grow old there. Revelation 21, 23, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. But there's one more reason why heaven is so associated with Jesus, an all too often forgotten reason, and that is because in heaven, the living church will be married to Jesus Christ forever and will express the love of a bride toward her bridegroom. And that theme is common in the Bible, Song of Solomon, Psalm 45, scattered throughout the book of Revelation, but a theme that is seldom preached about and something that God's people ought to think a great deal more about and relish that lavished love we heard about at the opening of this sermon upon the children of God who enter into eternal, utopian marriage with Jesus Christ. Yes, there is such a thing as utopian marriage. It's between Christ and the believer in heaven. And so that's what I want to look at with you this evening from Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. And we'll look at four thoughts. First, the wedding. Second, the bridegroom. Third, the bride. And fourth, the guests. Wedding, bridegroom, bride, and guests. If you're a believer in this here and now, in this present day, you are betrothed to Jesus and waiting for your wedding day. The Bible speaks of believers as being betrothed or espoused to Jesus here. Betrothal, espousal in Bible times was like a very, very strong engagement. Stronger than what we call engagement before marriage. From the day people were betrothed to each other, they would actually be regarded as husband and wife, but they would not live together. Mary, for example, was espoused to Joseph. And when Joseph was shocked to discover that she was pregnant, he was minded to put her away, but the angel said that he should not put away his wife. You see, betrothal was in one way considered to be marriage, and yet it wasn't yet marriage. Marriage was not yet consummated with physical intimacy and the final date of celebration. That would come later. The wedding day 
would then come, and both bride and bridegroom would dress in fine clothing. We read in Isaiah 61, and the bridegroom would come to the bride's home to take his espoused wife, to get her and her friends and take them to her new home where they would feast and celebrate, often for as long as a week. Now, this important period, what we call engagement, but in Bible times it was called betrothal or espousal, which was even stronger than engagement, as I said, was such that you could not separate, you could not break that espousal without a formal divorce. And so to dissolve this betrothal required what we would call a divorce. You need to understand this background if you're going to understand this text tonight. Because you see, all Christians are betrothed or espoused to Jesus. Paul speaks of that in 2 Corinthians 11. He speaks of jealousy that those whom he by grace had betrothed to Jesus, espoused to Jesus, espoused to one husband, he says, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4, that he might present them as a chaste virgin to Christ. He says, I fear lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So Paul casts himself in the role of the marriage broker, the matchmaker, and in his love for Christ, he desires to present to Jesus the chaste virgin bride of true believers. And he resents any other false apostle or false teacher coming into the Corinthian church to try to lead them astray from the pure gospel he's preached, and he accounts that as leading them into spiritual adultery. And you see, Paul's not just preaching a set of abstract truths here. He's not just presenting some people with some philosophy. He's proclaiming the person of Christ. And through his preaching, he's presenting that person to the congregation. I have betrothed you to Christ, he says. You are espoused to him. Samuel Stone says it in his beautiful poem this way, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. You see, in those days, <coughs> the espoused bride had to be purchased by the bridegroom and the bridegroom's father. And so Jesus Christ, you see, comes to pay the bride price for all true believers with the permission of his Father, with the decree of his Father, to give his own blood. And so when we are made true believers and are justified in his sight as we've sung tonight, you see what happens is we become legally and inalienably his, and he will never divorce us. But in the great day, he's coming again for his bride, the church, to lead us home to his father's house where he will present us spotless before his father in heaven and consummate the marriage for an eternal utopian marriage in glory. And so the book of Revelation tells us there will be a wedding, there will be festivities that will not last for a week or two, but for all eternity. We will be with Christ. We will behold His glory. And we will be married to Him forever.
if we're true believers. So the story of salvation is a love story. It's the covenant of grace love story. It's a marriage contract. Before the worlds were made, God the Father chose a bride for His Son, drew up a marriage contract between them. And this wedding, you see, was then initiated eternally by decree through choice. Not through mutual attraction, by the way. God chose us in eternity and gave us to Christ who bought us at Calvary and took us as his own through the preaching of the gospel. And now, on the great day, he will come back for us to claim us, to enjoy intimacy and fellowship with him forever. And so the whole Trinity is involved in this marriage. The Father gives us his Son as our bridegroom and gives us as a bride to the Son. And the Son, Ephesians 5.25, purchases his bride with his blood and death. And the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.14, is given to us as an earnest or a guarantee, a down payment. In ancient times, we would call it perhaps an engagement ring, or should we say an espousal ring. And so when Christ betroths us to himself, he gives us the Spirit to indwell us as a kind of engagement ring that guarantees that we will arrive at the last day at the actual wedding and be married to Jesus Christ forever in utopian marriage. And so you see, you, 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 can't, you can't imagine a greater wedding day, a greater wedding than this. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom than Jesus Christ. Never has a man gone to greater lengths or humbled himself more or endured more or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride than has Jesus Christ. Never has a wealthy father planned a greater feast than this father. Never has a more powerful pledge been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to this bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Oh, great will be the rejoicing. Great will be the exaltation in that day. There will be no limit to the glory given to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, by believers on that day. Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. What a wedding. The greatest wedding ever. And it is so because of the bridegroom. Let's look at this bridegroom. It's called the marriage of the lamb in our text, which is rather strange because lambs don't get married. But it's not strange because this is symbolic apocalyptic language. And you see, this is a figurative marriage that ought not throw us askew in our modern day when we're so sensitive about the sexes and so on and we think of, well, the bride? It's a man, a bride? No. But you see, in this marriage, it's speaking of an intimate union between Christ and his bride. 
which includes both men and women, but in non-sexual terms. So just disband all that sexual association from your mind. It's the same thing with adoption, spiritual adoption. You never read, by the way, do you, in the New Testament, that women are adopted daughters. You only read of the adoption of sons. And men and women are taken up into that figurative language. And so we're to regard that here as well. The lamb of this marriage shows us his love by living for us and dying for us. And so we speak of the marriage of the lamb because as a lamb he suffered and died and shows us his capacity to be our Savior and our Lord. And that lamb image is used all throughout the book of Revelation. Beginning already in chapter 5, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood, the blood of the Lamb, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So this love, initially, is very much a one-sided affair, a one-sided love affair. We love him, says John, because he first loved us. Now this is very different from our Western idea of love, of course, when we think of the ideal marriage in the West, we think of two lovers gazing into each other's eyes, starry-eyed with love. But in ancient Eastern countries, and in many parts of the world today, by the way, that's not the way it goes. There, the parents of a bride often decide when she's to marry. Some cultures, she has no say in the matter. She may not even know her husband. Or who he will be. She does not even meet him in some cases until the day they're married. And she learns to love him in the marriage. And he learns to love her as his wife. And something of that, of course, you see in the classic love story of Genesis 24 between Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah agrees to go to marry Isaac when she's never met the man. And you see, in some ways, this is the kind of marriage we have with Jesus. We love him. But we only love him because he first loved us. And he loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were utterly unattractive and utterly undeserving. He loved us while our minds and our beings, our records, and above all our hearts were ugly and stained with sin our carnal minds were at enmity with him. We were against him, and yet he loved us. That's an amazing love story. It's a love story of Hosea, pictured by Hosea in his love for Gomer. You remember in the book of Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. And that's what Hosea did. As an adulteress, Gomer had a succession of affairs, and when her youth and attractiveness were spent, she ended up in the slave market. But Hosea found Gomer there, in the slave market, and bought her back, not to exact revenge on her for the rest of her life, but out of sheer love for her, a faithful husband, despite her unfaithfulness to him. And that is how God loves you, dear believer, in the Lord Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, 
He died for us. While we were yet sinners, he loved us, unclean us, unfaithful us, promiscuous us. The Apostle John says, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the farthest limits of love. We can't measure, Paul says, the depth or the length or the height or the breadth of the love of God. It surpasses knowledge. It's beyond your wildest imagination. He loved us all the way to the cross of Calvary. And there on the, doubt, there on the cross, he pays the dowry price to his Father to free us from the penalty of sin, to bear the wrath of God so that we could confess in question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism tonight that through the obedience and righteousness of Jesus, it is as if... As a believer in him, with his righteousness imputed to me, my sin imputed to him, I had never sinned. This is the wonder of this glorious love. He does everything for a sinner who can do nothing. He redeems, he sanctifies, he glorifies, he does it all. You know, sometimes when two people marry, one has a substantial bank account and one is in debt. But when they married, they merged their accounts. And one flesh means one bank account. That's what Christ has done, you see. We were up to our necks in debt to a holy God because we've broken his law, every commandment, thousands of times. But Christ takes our liabilities. He takes our debt. He pays the price of hell, the essence of hell, for us, being the infinite God-man. And he bears the wrath of God. He drinks the cup of his Father's wrath to its bottom bitter dregs cries out the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then when he's drunk it to the very bottom, he says, it is finished. I've paid the whole price. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is your bridegroom, people of God. The perfect bridegroom, the perfect husband. A utopian husband. Do you want a husband? Do you want a match who has honor and greatness? Well, he's God and man. The brightness of his father's glory. The king of kings. The lord of lords. Do you want riches and treasures in your husband? His riches are the best. For they last forever. They're infinitely great. They'll satisfy your every desire. Are you looking for a spouse who has a generous heart? Well, he's generosity par excellence. He's willing to lay out his riches for his spouse that her joy may be full. You want a spouse who's full of knowledge and wisdom. Well, the infinite wisdom of God shines in him. He is wisdom with a capital W. Wisdom par excellence. Wisdom himself. And he'll do you good with his wisdom and knowledge. Are you looking for beauty and handsomeness? He's altogether lovely. He's more than all the beauty of human beings and angels combined. Are you seeking a husband who will truly, unconditionally, eternally love you? He is love itself, love that is higher than the heavens and deeper than the seas. Do you want a husband who's honored and esteemed? This husband is adored by saints and angels. The Father of heaven delights in him. 
Do you seek a match who will never die? Never leave you a widow. He's the King, immortal, eternal. He's the resurrection and the life. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Bridegroom. Do you know Him now? Do you know Him as Christ, as your Lamb? Have you received Him as your heavenly husband? Have you come to Him, repenting of your sin, throwing yourselves as hell-worthy sinners upon His mercy? Will you have Him tonight, the Son of God, to be your Savior, your love, your honor, to obey Him from this day forth forevermore? Will you have this sin-bearer as your bridegroom? Well, if you will have Him, you see, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if you won't have him, well, you won't have him at all. And dreadful will it be on the judgment day to stand before this Lamb as your judge to fall into the hands of the living God unprepared. Oh, may God move you to respond to this wonderful RSVP and that you will say with Rebecca, I will go. I will go to this greater Isaac. I will go to this great bridegroom. I will cast all my sins upon him. And forever, I will be united to him in marriage. But let's look a bit more at this bride because that's what our text does. In verse 7, we read these wonderful words, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Interesting words. And to her was granted, not taken, but granted, gifted, that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now what does all that mean? Well, it means, for one thing, doesn't it, that the bride's going to be beautiful on the day of judgment when she enters into marriage. She's going to be dressed with the fine white linen of the saints. You see, a bride is always concerned about what she'll wear on her special wedding day. Our oldest daughter is married, and one of the things she talked to us about, of course, before the marriage, was, Dad, Mom, what wedding dress Shall I buy? I want something that my husband-to-be, my fiancé, is very pleased with. And she had these uh, checklists of, of, of uh, brides-to-be, and she was checking off things and dates that she should do them, and she was, she was ahead of herself. She was, I mean, she was ahead of the book. She's longing to be married, and he longing to have her. And so she's earnestly seeking to please him in everything, also in her wedding dress. And you see, that's the way it ought to be. In fact, one day we were driving along. She said to me, Dad, I found a man who's even better than you are. I said, honey, that's exactly the way it should be. And he is better than I am. <laughs> that's exactly the way it should be. You see, Paul is waiting Paul is ready. He said, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. 
You see, if you're a true Christian, you love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You long for him to come again. John Kelvin said, a Christian who does not long for the second coming of Jesus has made little progress in the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon said, a true believer every morning ought to go to the east side of his home and look out the window to see when he gets up in the morning, is he coming? Is he on the way? Oh, not yet. We had a lady that worked for us for a number of years. She, she's retired now, but every year I'd say to her, oh, happy birthday, my friend. When it was the day of her birthday, and she'd look at me and she'd break out into a big smile and she'd say, one year closer to being with Jesus. It's the way a Christian ought to be. Not, oh, I wish I were younger like the world. No, one year closer to being with Jesus. What an amazing thing this is, you see. Longing, longing for that utopian marriage. You know, as a pastor, of course, like your pastors, I've had opportunity in my life to, to perform many weddings, actually hundreds of weddings, and met with, of course, hundreds of uh, brides-to-be and bridegrooms-to-be. And as I do premarital counseling with them, it's, I, I, I can't help but notice how many of them you know, would, would love to be married even sooner than they planned. One young man said to me, is there any possibility we, could, we can move up the wedding date? I, I, I can hardly wait. You see, do you, do you ever have that? Do you ever have that? You can't, you can't wait to be with Jesus forever. Where we read in Psalm 45, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. You see, Jesus is also longing for that day. He's longing for, for his bride, whom he's made beautiful through his own righteousness, to be with him forever. He's longing for that day when he can say, Here am I, Father, and all those whom thou hast given me. And so he's longing to embrace his bride, and his bride is longing to see him and embrace her bridegroom. It's a mutual desire. It's initiated by God, but becomes a two-way love affair. He's the king of heaven, and the king greatly desires you, dear bridegroom, dear bride, rather, for you will be lovely in his sight. The king of kings will make you the queen of heaven, he who rules over the whole universe. Draws his people to himself to be his bride, and the angels, even the angels of glory, will be our servants. And the king will take his bride by the hand and lead her into heavenly paradise, into that personal divine garden where we will live with him forever. That's the story. That's the symbolism. That's the love affair of heaven. And so you see, everything in heaven will be absolutely utopian in this marriage. Now, if you have a very good marriage in this world, that's a wonderful gift of God. If you marry in the Lord and you and your spouse both love the Lord and you get along wonderfully well and you have the same insights, the same convictions about spiritual things and, and you go forward with, in, in beautiful harmony, you've got just about the best thing you can have on earth next to spiritual life itself. But even in the very best marriage, it's not utopian. But this one is. And what a day it will be when we will meet him face to face forever. You know, the Bible says no one shall see his face and live. 
but the New Testament, Revelation 19 says, then they shall gaze, think about that, gaze upon his face. Have you ever been in the presence of a, of a really holy child of God who is so holy you felt a bit intimidated? Jesus is perfectly holy. But in Revelation 19, it says that the believer will be made perfectly holy in him. We will be in heaven, think about this, as holy as he is holy. And we will be able to gaze upon him face to face without feeling we have to turn away, without any intimidation in this utopian marriage. Samuel Rutherford, whom I referred to before, he said, here in this life, we get blinks and glances of Christ, but I long for the day when I will gaze upon him in his face. Not so long ago, we had a <coughs> Nigerian student who brought another new Nigerian student to, to meet me. And uh, as he introduced him to me, he... Um, the new student just kept looking at me like, like this. How did he dare to look at me? And uh, the older student noticed it, and he goes, oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, no. He said, you're in America now. You've got it wrong. In Nigeria, you're not to look. It's an insult to look your teacher in the face. But in America, it's an insult not to look your teacher in the face. So now the poor guy tried to, tried to look at me, and he, he kind of went like this, and then just a little bit longer, half a second, instead of sixteenth of a second. But he could not focus on me. It was impossible. And that's the frustration we have here as believers. We, we, we want more of Christ. We want to gaze upon him forever. We want not to be interrupted with sin. We want not to be distracted by this, this present evil world and our own carnal hearts. But again and again, we're torn away and we look back and we're torn away and we look back and we're torn away. But then it shall be over, you see. Then we will no more have to say, evil is present with me. But we will gaze upon him as pure as he is pure. We shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Is. And we shall relish this utopian marriage of perfection. When I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see, says the psalmist, when all the weary night is past and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then I shall be satisfied. And so, a believer will stand before Jesus on that great day, as holy as he is holy, dressed in the fine linen of the saints, the, the white wedding gown. And that gown will be special. It will be spotless. It will reflect this utopian marriage. Now, our youngest daughter has worked for some years now in a wedding gown store. And one day when she was working in the store, uh, <coughs> a lady came in and she said, my husband's dying of cancer. And I want to renew my vows before he dies. But I, I've got no money to buy a gown. And I, I can't fit in to my old wedding gown. Is there any possibility 
you could give me a wedding gown. Well, my daughter couldn't do that, of course. So she felt bad, but the woman, the woman had to go away disappointed. But then my daughter ran after her and said, I'll tell you what you can do. You can go to a thrift store and you can buy a wedding gown, maybe for $15, $20. And you bring it back to me and I'll, 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 I'll sew on all the beads and, all, and everything. I'll, I'll do all my work for nothing and I'll make the gown beautiful for you. And I'll, I'll also adjust it. I'll, I, I, she's a seamstress too. I'll, I'll make it fit you perfectly. And that's what happened. Lady went and bought it, I think $20. Brought it back to my daughter. She worked on it for a couple weeks. Got all the beads on. Got, got, got it fitting her perfectly. And the lady renewed her wedding vows just before her husband died. But you see, this dress doesn't even cost $20. Isaiah 61, verse 10, it was up on the screen moments ago. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. It's free in Christ. And so this robe of righteousness that we wear on our glorious wedding day is the realization of our imputed blamelessness and holiness through Christ. And Christ will reach his goal on that day to present us without spot or wrinkle in that righteousness. Ephesians 5.27, before his holy Father, pure as he is pure. And so this gown symbols, symbolizes our justification in him. He takes off the filthy garments of our guilt, as we read in the book of Zechariah, and He clothes us with the clean and beautiful clothing of His own merited righteousness. And His obedience is credited to us as we, by His grace, believe in Him alone for salvation. And so in the great day, when the saints go into glory, and the question is asked, who are these that are going into glory. Revelation 7.14 says, These are they who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb by trusting in Christ alone for justification from the guilt of all their sins. Luther put it so well. He said, Faith is the ring that clasps the diamond." You see, faith is the way by which we receive the white robe righteousness of Jesus Christ when we believe in Him alone for salvation. But that garment also has something else to say to us. It also speaks about our sanctification. Our sanctification. Because we will be perfected in that day in holiness as well. Our marriage will not only be utopian in the state of marriage, in justification, but also utopian in the condition of marriage in sanctification, because we will be as holy as he is holy. And so the text says in verse 8, and to her was granted that she shall be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. But in the Greek it says, the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds. So getting ready for Christ on the great wedding day 
is a one-sided gift of God in terms of justification, but it's a two-sided affair in terms of sanctification. The bride also gets herself ready, verse 7 says. You see, the person who says, I belong to Christ and yet never lifts a finger to purify himself, said J.C. Ryle, is deceived. The Christian life means getting ready. It means putting off the old way of living, Colossians 3.9, putting off all these anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and so on, and it putting on the new, verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies and kindness and humbleness of mind and meekness and longsuffering. You see, it's a serious thing, a serious business to make ourselves ready by the grace of the Holy Spirit for the return of Christ. There's no shortcuts here, no secrets, no easy escape routes. The bride makes herself ready. And yet, the gown is given, granted to her. To where? So, though you and I ought to be totally involved in the business of sanctification every day of our lives, at the same time, all our sanctification is the work of Christ through His Spirit working in us so that we still give God the credit for all our sanctification as well as our justification. And therefore, it's not alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth and I made myself holy, but it's alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Jesus reigns over every part of my salvation, my justification, my sanctification. And so as Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. It's all grace. Grace alone, by Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Alleluia. Sing praises to God. But now there's one more thought. The guests. What do we do with the guests? We read at the end, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. If the church is the bride, who are the guests? And there's been all kinds of speculation about, all kinds of unnecessary speculation about that. You see, the guests and the bride in this account are both believers in Jesus. And here's the beauty of this symbolic, figurative marriage of Christ. And again, you have to banish all kinds of earthly comparisons from your mind, like polytheism and that, or you know, polygamous marriage. No, no. In Jesus, there's a sense in which his entire, entire elect is as one bride. The church is his bride. There's a corporate dimension to the church. At the same time, he treats every one of his believers as if that believer were his only child, his only bride. So in Christ, the infinite Savior, there is an individuality dimension to salvation, and there's a corporate dimension to salvation. And so every believer is like an individual bride 
in terms of the intimacy you experience with Jesus. There will be a heavenly beatific vision of Jesus, a heavenly ecstasy without any sin or any hindrance. Every individual believer will find their greatest delight in Jesus, and he will be exquisitely delighted with you. But at the same time, he delights in his corporate bride. And that's the beauty of spiritual life here on earth. Isn't that true? How would it feel like tonight if you were the only one in this church? The whole atmosphere would be different, wouldn't it? And yet there's a sense in which you are the only one. The Word of God is coming to you uniquely tonight. And yet it's coming corporately. And you learn to appreciate both the corporate dimension and the individual dimension. And that's what believers learn to treasure as well. Let me give you an example. There was a man named William Montague Dyke. He was stricken with blindness at the age of 10. He was very intelligent, went on to university, graduate school, met a beautiful daughter of a British admiral. The courtship soon flamed into romance. He was never able to see this woman, but he fell in love with the beauty of her soul. They became engaged, and shortly before the wedding, at the insistence of the bride's father, William agreed to have eye surgery that might or might not restore his sight. It was to have a gauze and bandages around his eyes for two weeks before the wedding because he said, if it takes two weeks before the gauze and the bandages can come off, I want the surgery to be exactly two weeks before my wedding. Because if I could see, I want my dad to be my best man at my wedding to come up and take off the bandages. And if I can see, I want my bride to be the first thing I see. And that's exactly what happened. It was a very aristocratic audience because they were both from wealthy families. No one was supposed to say a word at the wedding. And everyone was kind of tense. They knew what was going to happen. And as the bride walked down the aisle... William's father came forward, unwrapped the bandages, and William could see, and he could not contain himself. He said, my dear, you are far more beautiful than I ever imagined. And you see, that's just a little shadow of what it would be like in the great day when the entire multitude of the corporate saints of God are around the bride, you as you enter into glory and you gaze upon Jesus the first time, you too will cry out with, with the queen of Sheba uh, only about the greater Solomon. The half of it was not told me. You are far more than I ever imagined, Lord Jesus. What a glorious thing to be part of the big family of God and to be individually loved at the same time as if you were an only child. So that you too are part of that incredible high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed and all his prayers are answered. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory and that they may know the love with which thou hast for me that thou wouldst love them with that same love. Incredible individuality. Incredible corporateness. Well, friend, I ask you in closing tonight, do you love this bridegroom? Has he won your heart? Is your salvation lying in the dowry price that he's paid for you? 
Because do you realize without him, you'd be up to your neck in debt because of all your sin. You know, I had a, I had a secretary one time who, who, lost her, who lost her husband, and she came to, came to work for us, and her husband died. He was a chiropractor, died from cancer, and uh, he left her $1 million in an offshore account that was getting lots of interest, so he thought. And after he died, she went to withdraw some of that money so she could live, and it was all a sham. She never got a penny of it back. And what was she going to do? Well, how is she going to pay her debts now? Well, a man came along from Canada who fell in love with her. She fell in love with him. And the day they got married, all her financial problems were over. He took care of everything. And he had much more wealth to give her beside. That's a picture of Jesus, you see. He wipes away our debt and he gives us his riches. And he comes to us tonight and he says, Wilt thou go with the greater Isaac, with the Lord Jesus Christ? He shows us. He shows us his promises in his word. He shows us the jewelry that Abraham's servant showed of Isaac. He shows tokens of his love in his word. But he asks us, Will you go? Will you be married? to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a blessing when we surrender our hearts to him because one day we will then enter into a utopian marriage. I close this sermon with two quick illustrations. One is of, of Gerald Ford's death when he died here nearby in Grand Rapids. You know Perhaps you, you two with your family were standing on the highway side when the hearse came by, as thousands of families were, to pay last respects to him. And on the other side of the highway where our family was, was a little boy with a sign that he had above his head, and he, he swung the sign back and forth. The sign was bigger than he was, and the boy was happy. He was smiling, and he said, the sign said, Welcome home, President Ford. And I was thinking, that's amazing. This boy is so happy to welcome home a dead body. But what will it be like on that great day? What will it be like to walk through the rows of cherubim and seraphim, the thousands upon tens of thousands lining both, both sides of the highway into the celestial city, and to come along on that highway, not dead in a hearse, but alive and in soul and body, to see Jesus standing in the gate of the celestial city, as Samuel Rutherford said, with a cloth to wipe away every final tear from my eye, and to behold him and to hear the cries go up, welcome home, sinner, saved by grace, to be united in utopian marriage forever with the King of Kings. Oh, glorious day, and we shall see the King in his beauty. But my last illustration is this. If you don't know this king and you never hanker for him to come again and you don't love him and you don't find your life in him, he's not your savior, your treasure, your lord, your king, the one to whom you do obeisance, the one whom you long to live for with all your heart. My friend, if you decline this RSVP tonight, you're on your way to everlasting destruction. 
The opposite of heaven is hell. And there's no communion in hell. There's no friendship in hell. There's misery. There's payment for sin forever. And no marriage at all. Hell is disastrous, solitary isolation forever. Everyone will be in too much pain to comfort anyone else. You need to repent. You need to believe the gospel. You need to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and find your life in him. And that needs to be shown that you found your life in him by the deeds of the saints. Your life needs to reflect it, that you've been made a new creation, as your church sign says, on the road. You know, once there was a northern Scotland shepherd boy, and he bedded down his sheep one night, and it was a ferocious storm that came up that night, and he bedded down his sheep in a valley between two hills, and there was a train viaduct running across the top. And that night, the storm broke that entire viaduct, and in the morning, the track was laid mangled in the valley. And the shepherd boy ran up the hillside in the morning and got to the track before the train came. And as the train came, he he motioned to the conductor to stop, but the conductor just wiped it away. And so the boy threw himself across the track. And the conductor slammed on his brakes and ran over the boy and stopped just before the train went down into the abyss. Most of the people were sleeping on the train. They got out. They ran. They ran to the gulf. They looked down. It was quiet. Nobody said a word. They saw the mangled track. They saw the mangled remains of the shepherd boy. And finally, one old man spoke. He said, that boy, that boy, that boy there, He saved my life. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to look down into the valley of the abyss of your own heart and see your sin and your need and your future in hell if you don't repent. And then you need to look to the Savior who throws himself across the tracks of your fast-running train. You need to stop. You need to repent. And you need to look to the cross. To him who throws himself before you and says, Sinner, will you go with this man? And don't rest until you can say, That God man there, that God man there on the cross, he saved my life. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, please apply this sermon to our souls. Please enable us to RSVP back to Thee. Yes, I will gladly come to the wedding. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is my only hope, my only life, my treasure, my Savior, my Lord, my all and in all. Yes, I will go. Oh God, conquer our hearts, win us and woo us, draw us to this utopian marriage and help us to find our only comfort in life and death in not belonging to ourselves, but in belonging to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Please bless us. In him we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.